Chapter sixty nine, part one of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume six by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 69. State of Rome from the 12th Century. Part 1. State of Rome from the 12th Century. Temporal Dominion of the Popes. Seditions of the City. Political Heresy of Arnold of Brescia. Restoration of the Republic. The Senators. Pride of the Romans. Their Wars. They are deprived of the election and presence of the Popes, who retire to Avignon. The Jubilee, Noble Families of Rome, Foyd of the Colonna and Ursini. In the first ages of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, our eye is invariably fixed on the royal city, which had given laws to the fairest portion of the globe. We contemplate her fortunes, at first with admiration, at length with pity, always with attention, and when that attention is diverted from the capital to the provinces, they are considered as so many branches which have been successively severed from the imperial trunk. The foundation of a second Rome, on the shores of the Bosphorus, has compelled the historian to follow the successors of Constantine, and our curiosity has been tempted to visit the most remote countries of Europe and Asia, to explore the causes and the authors of the long decay of the Byzantine monarchy. By the conquest of Justinian, we have been recalled to the banks of the Tiber, to the deliverance of the ancient metropolis, but that deliverance was a change, or perhaps an aggravation, of servitude. Rome had been already stripped of her trophies, her gods, and her Caesars, nor was the Gothic dominion more inglorious and oppressive than the tyranny of the Greeks. In this eighth century of the Christian era, a religious quarrel, the worship of images provoked the Romans to assert their independence. Their bishop became the temporal, as well as the spiritual, father of a free people. And of the Western Empire, which was restored by Charlemagne, the title and image still decorate the singular constitution of modern Germany. The name of Rome must yet command our involuntary respect. The climate, whatsoever may be its influence, was no longer the same, the purity of blood had been contaminated through a thousand channels, but the venerable aspect of her ruins and the memory of past greatness rekindled a spark of the national character. The darkness of the Middle Ages exhibits some scenes not unworthy of our notice. Nor shall I dismiss the present work till I have reviewed the state and revolutions of the Roman city which acquiesced under the absolute dominion of the popes, about the same time that Constantinople was enslaved by the Turkish arms. In the beginning of the twelfth century, the era of the First Crusade, Rome was revered by the Latins as the metropolis of the world, as the throne of the Pope and the Emperor, who, from the Eternal City, derived their title, their honors, and the right or exercise of temporal dominion. After so long an interruption, it may not be useless to repeat that the successors of Charlemagne and the Ossos were chosen beyond the Rhine in a national diet, 
but that these princes were content with the humble names of kings of Germany and Italy, till they had passed the Alps and the Apennine, to seek their imperial crown on the banks of the Tiber. At some distance from the city, their approach was saluted by a long procession of the clergy, and people with palms and crosses, and the terrific emblems of wolves and lions, of dragons and eagles, that floated in the military banners, they represented the departed legions and cohorts of the Republic. The royal pass to maintain the liberties of Rome was thrice reiterated, at the bridge, the gate, and on the stairs of the Vatican, and the distribution of a customary donative feebly imitated the magnificence of the first Caesars. In the church of St. Peter, the coronation was performed by his successor. The voice of God was confounded with that of the people, and the public consent was declared in the acclamations of Long life and victory to our Lord the Pope, long life and victory to our Lord the Emperor, long life and victory to the Roman and Teutonic armies. The names of Caesar and Augustus, the laws of Constantine and Justinian, the example of Charlemagne and Otto, established the supreme dominion of the emperors. Their title and image was engraved on the papal coins, and their jurisdiction was marked by the sword of justice, which they delivered to the prefect of the city. But every Roman prejudice was awakened by the name, the language, and the manners of a barbarian lord. The Caesars of Saxony and or Franconia were the chiefs of a feudal aristocracy, nor could they exercise the discipline of civil and military power, which alone secures the obedience of a distant people, impatient of servitude, though perhaps incapable of freedom. Once, and once only, in his life, each emperor, with an army of Teutonic vassals, descended from the Alps. I have described the peaceful order of his entry and coronation, but that order was commonly disturbed by the clamor and sedition of the Romans, who encountered their sovereign as a foreign invader. His departure was always speedy, and often shameful, and in the absence of a long reign, his authority was insulted, and his name was forgotten. The progress of independence in Germany and Italy undermined the foundations of the imperial sovereignty, and the triumph of the popes was the deliverance of Rome. Of her two sovereigns, the emperor had precariously reigned by the right of conquest, but the authority of the pope was founded on the soft, though more solid basis of opinion and habit. The removal of a foreign influence restored and endeared the shepherd to his flock. Instead of the arbitrary or venal nomination of a German court, the vicar of Christ was freely chosen by the college of cardinals, most of whom were either natives or inhabitants of the city. The applause of the magistrates and people confirmed his election, and the ecclesiastical power that was obeyed in Sweden and Britain had been ultimately derived from the suffrage of the Romans. The same suffrage gave a prince, as well as a pontiff, to the capital. It was universally believed that Constantine had invested the popes with the temporal dominion of Rome, and the boldest civilians, the most profane sceptics, were satisfied with disputing the right of the emperor and the validity of his gift. The truth of the fact, the authenticity of his donation, was deeply rooted in the ignorance and tradition of four centuries, and the fabulous origin was lost in the real and permanent effects. 
The name of Dominus, or Lord, was inscribed on the coin of the bishops. Their title was acknowledged by acclamations and oaths of allegiance, and with the free or reluctant consent of the German Caesars, they had long exercised a supreme or subordinate jurisdiction over the city and patrimony of St. Peter. The reign of the popes, which gratified their prejudices, was not incompatible with the liberties of Rome, and a more critical inquiry would have revealed a still nobler source of their power, the gratitude of a nation, whom they had rescued from the heresy and oppression of the Greek tyrant. In an age of superstition, it should seem that the union of the royal and sacerdotal characters would mutually fortify each other, would be the surest pledge of earthly obedience. The sanctity of the office might indeed be degraded by the personal vices of the man, but the scandals of the tenth century were obliterated by the austere and more dangerous virtues of Gregory the Seventh and his successors, and in the ambitious contests which they maintained for the rights of the Church, their sufferings or their success must equally tend to increase the popular veneration. They sometimes wandered in poverty and exile, the victims of persecution, and the apostolic zeal with which they offered themselves to martyrdom must engage the favor and sympathy of every Catholic breast. And sometimes, sundering from the Vatican, they created, judged, and deposed the kings of the world, nor could the proudest Roman be disgraced by submitting to a priest whose feet were kissed and whose stirrup was held by the successors of Charlemagne. Even the temporal interest of the city should have protected in peace and honor the residence of the popes, from whence a vain and lazy people derived the greatest part of their subsistence and riches. The fixed revenue of the popes was probably impaired. Many of the old patrimonial estates, both in Italy and the provinces, had been invaded by sacrilegious hands, nor could the loss be compensated by the claim, rather than the possession of the more ample gifts of Pepin and his descendants. But the Vatican and capital were nourished by the incessant and increasing swarms of pilgrims and suppliants. The pale of Christianity was enlarged, and the Pope and cardinals were overwhelmed by the judgment of ecclesiastical and secular causes. A new jurisprudence had established in the Latin Church the right and practice of appeals, and from the north and west the bishops and abbots were invited or summoned to solicit, to complain, to accuse or to justify, before the threshold of the apostles. A rare prodigy is once recorded. The two horses belonging to the archbishops of Mentz and Cologne repassed the Alps, yet laden with gold and silver, but it was soon understood that the success, both of the pilgrims and clients, depended much less on the justice of their cause than on the value of their offering. The wealth and piety of these strangers were ostentatiously displayed, and their expenses, sacred or profane, circulated in various channels from the emolument of the Romans. Such powerful motives should have firmly attached the voluntary and pious obedience of the Roman people, to their spiritual and temporal father. But the operation of prejudice and interest is often disturbed by the sallies of ungovernable passion. The Indian who fells the tree, that he may gather the fruit, and the Arab who plunders the caravans of commerce, are actuated by the 
same impulse of savage nature, which overlooks the future in the present, and relinquishes for momentary repine the long and secure possession of the most important blessings. And it was thus that the shrine of St. Peter was profaned by the thoughtless Romans, who pillaged the offerings and wounded the pilgrims, without computing the number and value of similar visits, which they prevented by their inhospitable sacrilege. Even the influence of superstition is fluctuating and precarious, and the slave, whose reason is subdued, will often be delivered by his avarice or pride. A credulous devotion for the fables and oracles of the priesthood, most powerful acts on the mind of a barbarian, yet such a mind is the least capable of preferring imagination to sense, or sacrificing to a distant motive, to an invisible, perhaps an ideal, object, the appetites and interests of the present world. In the vigor of health and youth, his practice will perpetually contradict his belief, till the pressure of age or sickness or calamity awakens his terrors, and compels him to satisfy the double depth of piety and remorse. I have already observed that the modern times of religious indifference are the most favorable to the peace and security of the clergy. Under the reign of superstition they had much to hope from the ignorance, and much to fear from the violence of mankind. The wealth, whose constant increase must have rendered them the sole proprietors of the earth, was alternately bestowed by the repentant father and plundered by the rapacious son. Their persons were adored or violated, and the same idol, by the hands of the same votaries, was placed on the altar or trampled in the dust. In the feudal system of Europe, arms were the title of distinction and the measure of allegiance, and amidst their tumult the still voice of law and reason was seldom heard or obeyed. The turbulent Romans disdained the yoke and insulted the impotence of their bishop, nor would his education or character allow him to exercise, with decency or effect, the power of the sword. The motives of his election and the frailties of his life were exposed to their familiar observation, and proximity must diminish the reverence which his name and his decrees impressed on a barbarous world. This difference was not escaped the notice of our philosophic historian, though the name and authority of the court of Rome were so terrible in the remote countries of Europe, which were sunk in profound ignorance, and were entirely unacquainted with its character and conduct. The Pope was so little revered at home, that his inveterate enemies surrounded the gates of Rome itself, and even controlled his government in that city, and the ambassadors who, from a distant extremity of Europe, carried to him the humble or rather abject submissions of the greatest potentate of the age, found the utmost difficulty to make their way to him, and to throw themselves at his feet. Since the primitive times, the wealth of the popes was exposed to envy, their powers to opposition, and their persons to violence. But the long hostility of the mitre and the crown increased the numbers, and inflamed the passions of their enemies. The deadly factions of the Guelphs and Ghibellines, so fatal to Italy, could never be embraced with truth or constancy by the Romans, the subjects and adversaries both as a bishop and emperor, but their support was solicited by both parties, and they alternately displayed in their banners the keys of St. Peter and the German eagle.
Gregory the Seventh, who may be adored or detested as the founder of the papal monarchy, was driven from Rome, and died in exile at Salerno. Six and thirty of his successors, till their retreat to Avignon, maintained an unequal contest with the Romans. Their age and dignity were often violated, and the churches and the solemn rites of religion were polluted with sedition and murder. A repetition of such capricious brutality, without connection or design, would be tedious and disgusting, and I shall content myself with some events of the twelfth century, which represent the state of the popes and the city. On Holy Thursday, while Pascal officiated before the altar, he was interrupted by the clamors of the multitude, who imperiously demanded the confirmation of a favorite magistrate. His silence exasperated their fury. His pious refusal to mingle the affairs of earth and heaven was encountered with menaces and oaths, and he should be the cause and the witness of a public ruin. During the festival of Easter, while the bishop and the clergy, barefooted and in procession, visited the tombs of the martyrs, they were twice assaulted, at the bridge of St. Angelo, and before the capital, with volleys of stones and darts. The houses of his adherents were levelled with the ground. Pascal escaped with difficulty and danger. He levied an army in the patrimony of St. Peter, and his last days were embittered by suffering and inflicting the calamities of civil war. The scenes that followed the election of his successor Gelasius II were still more scandalous to the church and city. Cencio Frangipani, a potent and factious baron, burst into the assembly furious and in arms. The cardinals were stripped, beaten, and trampled underfoot, and he seized, without pity or respect, the vicar of Christ by the throat. Gelasius was dragged by the hair along the ground. Buffeted with blows, mounted with spores, and bound with an iron chain in the house of his brutal tyrant. An insurrection of the people delivered their bishop. The rival families opposed the violence of the Prangipani, and Cencio, who sued for pardon, repented of the failure, rather than of the guilt, of his enterprise. Not many days had elapsed, when the Pope was again assaulted at the altar. While his friends and enemies were engaged in a bloody contest, he escaped in his sacerdotal garments. In this unworthy flight, which excited the compassion of the Roman matrons, his attendants were scattered or unhorsed, and in the fields behind the church of St. Peter, his successor was found alone, and half dead with fear and fatigue. Shaking the dust from his feet, the apostle withdrew from a city in which his dignity was insulted, and his person was endangered, and the vanity of sacerdotal ambition is revealed in the involuntary confession that one emperor was more tolerable than twenty. These examples might suffice, but I cannot forget the sufferings of two pontiffs of the same age, the second and third of the name of Lucius. The former, as he ascended in battle array to assault the capital, was struck on the temple by a stone, and expired in a few days. The latter was severely wounded in their person of his servants. In a civil commotion several of his priests had been made prisoners, and the inhuman Romans, reserving one as a guide for his brethren, put out their eyes, crowned them with ludicrous mitres, mounted them on asses with their faces towards the tail, and extorted an oath, that, in this wretched condition, 
they should offer themselves as a lesson to the head of the church. Hope or fear, lassitude or remorse, the characters of the men and the circumstances of the times, might sometimes obtain an interval of peace and obedience, and the Pope was restored with joyful acclamations to the Lateran or Vatican, from whence he had been driven with threats and violence. But the root of mischief was deep and perennial, and the momentary calm was preceded and followed by such tempests as had almost sunk the bark of St. Peter. Rome continually presented the aspect of war and discord. The churches and palaces were fortified and assaulted by the factions and families, and, after giving peace to Europe, Callistus II alone had resolution and power to prohibit the use of private arms in the metropolis. Among the nations who revered the apostolic throne, the tumults of Rome provoked a general indignation, and in a letter to his disciple Eugenius III, St. Bernard, with the sharpness of his wit and zeal, has stigmatized the vices of the rebellious people. Who is ignorant, says the monk of Clairvaux, of the vanity and arrogance of the Romans? A nation nursed in sedition, untractable, and scorning to obey, unless they are too feeble to resist. When they promise to serve, they aspire to reign. If they swear allegiance, they watch the opportunity of revolt. Yet they vent their discontent in loud clamors, if your doors or your counsels are shut against them. Dexterous in mischief, they have never learned the science of doing good. Odious to earth and heaven, impious to God, seditious among themselves, jealous of their neighbors, inhuman to strangers, they love no one, by no one are they beloved, and while they wish to inspire fear, they live in base and continual apprehension. They will not submit, they know not how to govern faceless to their superiors, intolerable to their equals, ungrateful to their benefactors, and alike impudent in their demands and their refusals, lofty in promise, poor in execution, adulation and calumny, perfidy and treason, are the familiar arts of their policy. Surely this dark portrait is not colored by the pencil of Christian charity. Yet the features, however harsh or ugly, express a lively resemblance of the Roman of the twelfth century. The Jews had rejected the Christ when he appeared among them in a plebeian character, and the Romans might plead their ignorance of his vicar when he assumed the pomp and pride of a temporal sovereign. In the busy age of the Crusades, some sparks of curiosity and reason were rekindled in the Western world. The heresy of Bulgaria, the Paulician sect, was successful transplanted into the soil of Italy and France. The Gnostic visions were mingled with the simplicity of the gospel, and the enemies of the clergy reconciled their passions with their conscience, the desire of freedom with the profession of piety. The trumpet of Roman liberty was first sounded by Arnold of Brescia, whose promotion in the church was confined to the lowest rank, and who wore the monastic habit rather as a garb of poverty than as a uniform of obedience. His adversaries could not deny the wit and eloquence which they severely felt. They confessed with reluctance the specious purity of his morals, and his errors were recommended to the public by a mixture of important and beneficial truths. 
In his theological studies he had been the disciple of the famous and unfortunate Abelard, who was likewise involved in the suspicion of heresy, but the lover of Eloisa was of a soft and flexible nature, and his ecclesiastical judges were edified and disarmed by the humility of his repentance. Arnold most probably imbibed some metaphysical definitions of the Trinity, repugnant to the taste of the times. His ideas of baptism and the Eucharist are loosely censored, but a political heresy was the source of his fame and misfortunes. He presumed to quote the declarations of Christ, that his kingdom is not of this world. He boldly maintained that the sword and the scepter were entrusted to the civil magistrate, that temporal honors and possessions were lawfully vested in secular persons, that the abbots, the bishops, and the pope himself must renounce either their state or their salvation, and that after the loss of their revenues, the voluntary tithes and oblations of the faithful would suffice, not indeed for luxury and avarice, but for a frugal life in the exercise of spiritual labors. During a short time the preacher was revered as a patriot, and the discontent or revolt of Brescia against her bishop was the first fruits of his dangerous lessons. But the favor of the people is less permanent than the resentment of the priest, and after the heresy of Arnold had been condemned by Innocent II, in the general council of the Lateran, the magistrates themselves were urged by prejudice and fear to execute the sentence of the church. Italy could no longer afford a refuge, and the disciple of Abelard escaped beyond the Alps, till he found a safe and hospitable shelter in Zürich, now the first of the Swiss cantons. From a Roman station, a royal villa, a chapter of noble virgins, Zurich had gradually increased to a free and flourishing city, where the appeals of the Milanese were sometimes tried by the imperial commissaries. In an age less ripe for reformation, the precursor of Zwinglius was heard with applause. A brave and simple people imbibed, and long retained, the color of his opinions, and his art or merit seduced the bishop of Constance, and even the pope's legate, who forgot for his sake, the interest of their master and their order. Their tardy zeal was quickened by the fierce exhortations of St. Bernard, and the enemy of the church was driven by persecution to the desperate measures of erecting his standard in Rome itself, in the face of the successor of St. Peter. End of chapter 69, part 1